Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience-based language and reading programs since 1999. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, we're always keen to hear what you think. Send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. And you can subscribe to this podcast for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. One million Australian children are at risk of reading failure. It sounds hard to believe, but that's just one of the alarming statistics coming from a report titled Read About It, Scientific Evidence for Effective Teaching of Reading. The report was published in March 2016 by the Centre for Independent Studies, and my guest today is the editor of that report, Dr Jennifer Buckingham. The report makes the case that most children will need significant or intensive instruction in reading, and that turning to science is a key factor in producing effective solutions. There's a strong emphasis on direct or explicit teaching. It focuses on what the report labels as the five keys to reading, and presents a compelling contrast to emerging theories of education such as minimally guided or self-directed learning. In this episode, Dr Buckingham helps us understand the magnitude of the problem and how we can address it. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Just to give our listeners a little bit of perspective, the Centre for Independent Studies released a research report in March 2016 titled Read About It, Scientific Evidence for Effective Teaching of Reading. I'd like to start by just taking some highlight stats from that report, if I may. One million Australian children are at risk of reading failure. That's nearly 4% of the Australian population. In many cases, the difference in reading ability amongst children of the same age can be measured in years. And one third of 15-year-olds aren't meeting national literacy standards. Would you call this a crisis? It is a crisis in the sense that um, the potential um, and and really real consequences for those um, particular people and also for the people around them and and really for everybody uh, are very serious. It's not a crisis um, in the sense that it's sudden or new. This is something that has been evident and growing for quite some time and so uh, I wouldn't like to give the impression that this is something that has suddenly happened. We've known about it for at least two decades and um, been arguing for what are the solutions for at least as long. So this is a little bit like a boiling frog syndrome where the the, the frog is unaware of the fact that the water is heating up around it. Uh, I would like to think that um, there was a a level of unawareness going on, but I think that we are all too aware and um, most people are very aware of it. It's just that we seem to be stuck in a a pattern of, of arguing over what are the solutions rather than um, pursuing those that are most likely to work. And, and by that I mean that um, specifically the debates over effective reading instruction, particularly in the early years of school. Oh, that's interesting. Look, I don't want to get bogged down into this too early in this discussion, but that suggests that it's either a political or an educational debate or perhaps a combination of both. What do you think that's driving? It's, it's absolutely both. And um, I think while many of us would wish that it's not the case, education is... Um, inherently political. There are people who who, um, take various different positions in the education debate um, tend to become political about it, largely because of the large amount of government influence over what happens in schools. Um, And so therefore, 
whichever is the, the government of the day, will be making fairly high-stakes decisions about what happens in our schools, and therefore you can't help but be political about it. The report uh, talks about the fact that studies indicate a majority of children need either significant or intensive reading instruction or intervention, and I'm citing two US studies from the report. And without getting too complicated, I won't name them, but they are available for people to read in the report, which I encourage them to download. Now, based on what you've just said with regards to education debate and political debate, this, is, uh, this idea of significant intervention is mentioned in the context of improved instruction, particularly direct instruction. Do you think this indicates the fact that we've actually just taken reading ability for granted, as in, as in the fact that somebody else will just instruct someone to read? Yeah, I think that this is a particularly um, a, a problem amongst adults who have learned to read well in their own memory, you know, almost without effort. Um, we none of us really remember, um, well, not none of us, few of us really remember that how exactly we learn to read. Um, it just sort of seems to happen in a um, an unforced kind of natural way. And then as we become proficient readers, we're no longer aware of the really complex sort of um, cognitive processes that are taking place um, as we're, we're reading. And so therefore, I think we tend to, to think that, that reading is a, a natural thing that just everyone will eventually learn to read. And it's definitely not the case. So there, there are plenty of... Um, of scientists who have explained that the brain is has no sort of reading part that we haven't evolved to, be, to naturally learn how to make sense of written code and translate that translate that into oral language that this is a relatively new skill in evolutionary terms and so a lot of people have to actually be carefully taught how to do that so uh, how do we bring this into the the national conscience i mean if if there is a science behind it that we need to be aware of how do we do that do we just talk about that more do we do we print out leaflets do we do we hammer our politicians i mean is is, is it a combination of those things it, it will require a yeah, fairly sort of concerted a, approach um, across a variety of areas so we have at the Centre for Independent Studies developed a project called Five from Five um, and the, the, it's called Five from Five because we're talking about the five key elements of a, an effective reading instruction program and that those elements should be in reading instruction from the first year of school when most children are about um, the age of five. And the Five from Five project is designed to try and get this information out to as many people as possible. And I'm talking there about teachers, principals, parents, policymakers, and teacher educators. So this pulling together all of the research and um, synthesizing it in an accessible way so that busy teachers and busy parents who want to access up-to-date information um, are able to do that, and also in a way that's relevant to them in an Australian classroom and in an Australian home. Just uh, staying with the idea of improved instruction, teacher quality is also talked about in the report uh, quite a bit. And this also relates to recent research, research sorry, which has been published by the Grattan Institute. Uh, they recently re uh, released a report on widening achievement gaps in NAPLAN and academics such as uh, John Hattie from Melbourne. If we're talking about teacher quality and direct instruction, are we potentially opening up a very, very sensitive issue here? Well, direct instruction as a term tends to be a bit loaded. So I think it's useful here to discuss um, the difference 
sorts of direct instruction. So there's direct instruction with capital D, capital I, and that is a commercially developed program which is very specific, um, which is developed in America. And it is designed in such a way that um, it, it's scripted essentially. So teachers pr read from the script, they follow the lesson plan. There's um, very much, um, very little room for teachers to deviate from the lesson, even just in terms of the way that they explain things and set things up. Um, whereas there is also DI with or direct instruction with lowercase letters, and that is a more general kind of teaching strategy, which sometimes is called explicit instruction. And what direct instruction or explicit instruction does is it is a, a technique of teaching which breaks down information into fairly small um, units and delivers them in a really sequential way. There's lots of monitoring, lots of assessment, lots of um, teacher-student interaction. But it's a highly um, planned sequence of teaching that is, I guess, in order to, um, sometimes it can be better described by contrasting it with a different approach, and that is it's, it's in contrast to the sort of approach where you allow students to um, pursue their own knowledge within sort of an inquiry-based sort of classroom. It's very much teacher-directed and very much planned. Uh, and teachers tend to fall into various um, camps in regard to the sort of instruction they do, whether it's um, explicit instruction or inquiry-based. Many sit, sort of sit somewhere in the middle, but there is a tendency in Australian classrooms to be um, moving towards the, the inquiry-based um, methods of teaching, not just in reading, but in all areas of the curriculum. Unfortunately, um, research has shown quite clearly that inquiry-based methods are not as effective. Um, as, as explicit instruction um, and you know their effectiveness depends a little bit on where students are in the um, trajectory of their learning if they've already learned um, competencies in particular areas then they can be um, some usefulness in inquiry-based sorts of um, lessons however when they're new learners when they're learning a new concept or something that's really complex then explicit instruction is by far the most effective strategy. I notice that the report talks about that quite a bit towards the end and in particular it mentions uh, the concept of cognitive load theory which I'd like to come to at the end of our discussion. Let's talk about reading and codes because I don't think people often think about reading as a code and I think this comes back to what you said earlier in that people generally don't remember or don't perhaps don't remember very well how they learned to read and so they might just take for take for granted that they they are actually very good code breakers or code interpreters a 2005 australian national inquiry into teaching literacy suggested that we turn towards science for inspiration uh, i just like the sound of that <laughs> but the report also states that there's a, a large body of local and international evidence to suggest that children make the connection with oral and written language um in order that they need to make that connection between oral and written language in order to be able to decipher alphabetic code. Uh, how do we make people more aware of the importance of the code nature of language? Uh, I, I think really it's about providing accurate information. So there are a lot of people in academia um, particularly who seem to be of the opinion that um, that because the English language is a particularly complicated language, that it's not um, a phonetic language. And by phonetic, I mean um, 
that you can work out what words are using rules about uh, letters and sounds and their combinations um, and how you put them together. So um, when we're talking about a code, we're talking about the, the relationship between you know, the black marks on the page and the sounds that you hear in words. And in English, the, the written code is not as transparent or as easy to learn as uh, other languages. So um, Spanish and Finnish, for example, are, are very straightforward. They're, there's only one letter for each letter sound and vice versa, whereas in, in English we have 26 letters and 44 or 45 uh, letter sounds depending on the person's accent because accent um, can change slightly um, the, the sounds of various um, phoneme and grapheme correspondences. So what that means is not that you can't teach English in a code-breaking uh, way using phonics techniques but really what it means that you have it's even more important that we do that because it's going to be less likely that a child is going to work that out on their own so in Finland for example children have pretty much learned how to decode words they're, they're reading at a, a fairly functional level after the first year at school unless they have some sort of learning difficulty, in which case it might take a little bit longer. But most have already done that because it's a fairly simple kind of language to learn. What sort of age are we talking about after that first year of school in, in Finland? Well, they start formal schooling a little bit later than, than our students. So they will usually be around about seven. So they will have been in, um, in preschool, but formal sort of preschool, often full time, uh, up until the first year at school and then with one year of, of quite um, systematic reading instruction they, they'll have got that within a year um, and then are moving on to more uh, sort of complex areas of the curriculum so they can move on to you know the, the um, reading to learn aspect of um, schooling much more quickly than, than students um, in English-speaking countries can do because we're, we're still learning some of the code aspects of our language through to year two um, and year three even when it comes down to, um, to some of the more unusual sorts of spellings. So it, it does make the English language harder to learn and what that means is that we have to be even more careful and more methodical about it, how it's taught. So what are your thoughts on sight words? Sight words definitely have a place and there, there are some very common words that um, don't fit the, the normal sort of phonic patterns. So I'm thinking there of, of a word like was. So if you're reading that phonetically, you would read it as was. Yes. Um, and so there are words like that that um, they, they are very frequent words in simple books and so it's much easier to teach children those words just as a whole unit. Said is another one. So it's very difficult to, to come across um, or to create a, a simple text that is interesting to read without using some of those high-frequency words. And it's not that, that those words um, never did conform to the normal sorts of phonetic rules of language. It's just that over time, um, humans being sometimes quite lazy creatures <laughs> have taken, or taken to pronouncing things in a way that is... Um, is easier 
um, in the context of conversation. So the way we pronounce words has changed significantly over time. Um, so it's, it's a matter of, of teaching children that, that that's how we, we pronounce these words for you know, various historical reasons, but it's much easier just to learn those as sight words initially. If you, if you don't learn those words as sight words, it's very difficult to get into to reading actual books um, rather than just reading lists of words. I guess that's why you suggested before that there are there might be one or two extra uh, letter sounds or phonemes depending on your accent. Um, and uh, when you use the word "was" as an example, the first thing I thought of was Steve Wozniak, as in a person. But then, if you think about it, uh, "was" is also a, a, a fairly uh, popular way of saying the, the name Warren. <laughs> and so, I yes. think I think you are quite uh, quite observant there in uh, the fact that we have become well. I'd say, yeah. A, a little bit lazy in the way we use words, and that that could be adding to the problem, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. And there's nothing we can really do about that. There there are, of course, exceptions to the normal phonetic rules. I was just thinking about another word, such as cupboard. Um, so initially, that word would have been pronounced cupboard, but over time, um, we've we've just got lazy, and now um, the the conventional way of, of pronouncing that is cupboard. So a child who, who reads that and sounds it out um, using the phonetic rules won't exactly be wrong in terms of the way that they have um, decoded that word. It's just that um, our speaking conventions have become a little bit different to our writing conventions in some cases. More from my discussion with Dr Buckingham coming up in just a moment. Online and on your mobile, you can subscribe to this podcast for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Let's talk a little bit about the five keys to reading that the report mentions as the the keys for reading success. The first ones I'd I'd like to mention are phonics and phonemic awareness. And in themselves, they sound like scary words because you don't hear those words used all the time in everyday language. And I've been in classrooms and staff rooms in schools since 1999, mainly in secondary. Uh, Is this just a primary school thing? How, How do I know when to stop talking about phonics and phonemes? Well, phonemic awareness is something that is really important um, very early. So you would really hope that phonemic awareness um, wouldn't be an issue by the time you get to to secondary school. And it's a a precursor, I guess, to um, phonics in particular and and has a really strong role in um, learning to decode um, and also learning to encode, so learning to spell. And the reason that it's important is because phonemic awareness is the ability to hear the discrete sounds in a word. Uh, The the knowledge and awareness that that speech is not just a stream of indecipherable sounds that can't be broken up into into individual units. And so um, speech is made up of, of words, obviously, and then those words themselves can be broken up into individual sounds. And when children can identify the individual sounds in words, it makes it much easier for them to make the connection between those sounds and um, the letters they see on the page. So phonemic awareness needs to be um, taught in the context of phonics. So um, it, because it makes that knowledge um, much more concrete, children who have poor phonemic or phonological awareness will struggle with learning to read. Um, and for some children, that's um, 
a genetic problem that is something they will struggle with um, and, and need support with for quite a long period of time. But for most students, that, that's um, a skill that once they have acquired it, it doesn't need to be um, continually reinforced. The other three um, are fluency and vocabulary and comprehension. So fluency is, is really um, making all of the knowledge that you've learned um, in, in phonics, making that automatic so that when um, a child or a person who is learning to read um, is reading, they're not doing it laboriously. They're doing it in a, a smooth kind of way that um, allows them to focus on comprehension rather than working out what the words are. Uh, if you're labouring over, over every word, then by the time you get to the sentence, you've forgotten what was at the beginning. <laughs> so you're not really thinking about what the words mean, what the sentence means, let alone any kind of you know, reading between the lines and making inferences and all those sorts of things that good readers do. So fluency is a really essential aspect in moving from decoding into comprehension. Is there a difference between reading fluently out aloud and reading fluently to yourself? Uh, generally not. You know, m most, um, most people who can read um, fluently in, in one domain can read fluently in the other. Um, it's, you know, it would be fairly rare to find um, a child who, who reads slowly out loud, who you know, reads quickly, silently, um, because they're still they're going through the same process. So I'm just wondering, um, from a practical perspective for teachers in a, in a classroom, and I'm thinking subjects other than English right now, would it be plausible, therefore, to use uh, reading out loud as a way to diagnose potential reading problems? So, for example, let's say you've got to do a presentation or an assignment, rather than just reading from palm cards or trying to recall from memory, would it actually be helpful to give students a script or something to read just to detect how they actually read and if there's fluency and, and if there isn't, that there might be some other underlying issue? Yeah, I think that would be very useful if a teacher is, is concerned about um, how well a student is understanding um, the text that they've been given to read. There's a very high level of, um, of, of correlation between fluency and comprehension. So um, you can do, so there's some fairly simple sort of um, tests of, you know, words read correctly per minute, which are really good predictors of comprehension levels of students. So that, that would um, be a really useful piece of information for teachers in all disciplines. I found the section on vocabulary in the report fascinating. Uh, and, and I'm thinking about this in the, in the context of shared reading and uh, listening to words, and in fact, just the number of words. And it's perhaps a little known or little considered fact from research that children from lower socioeconomic backgrounds actually hear millions of words less than their more advanced peers by age three. Uh, and I have heard different numbers, but your report suggests up to 30 million words less, which is a staggering number because I don't think many people or many of us actually think about how many words we say in our life, uh, some more than others. Um, is this a wake-up call for all parents to be extremely mindful of the words that they use and, and speak often? Absolutely. Speak often and clearly and use lots of different words. Um, and vocabulary is embedded by hearing words repeatedly uh, and in different contexts and by discussing what that mean, word means in various different contexts. And this is something that it's not 
it's not difficult for parents to do. It's not expensive. <laughs> it can be quite taxing in terms of energy. We all know what it's you know, like to have toddlers who are constantly asking questions and constantly asking the same questions, but there's a reason for that, and that is that you learn by repetition. So they're, they're seeking knowledge all the time, and, um, and parents can be the source of a great deal of that knowledge. And vocabulary is um, really incredibly important for comprehension. So while you know, phonemic awareness and phonics is a great predictor of early reading in terms of um, basic decoding and, and just simply um, working out what words are and being able to read at that sort of functional level, vocabulary is the great predictor of, um, of how well um, reading will progress after that point. So it, it allows um, children to expand the sorts of things that they read and it, it feeds into what's called um, a, sort of a reciprocal feedback loop which then creates what's called the Matthew effect. And the Matthew effect is that, uh, that children who start off as good readers um, will read a lot and they'll gain a lot more knowledge, they'll become more skilled readers. So the more they read, the more they read uh, and the better they get at it. Whereas children who struggle with, with reading, either because of poor decoding skills or because um, they have low vocabulary, won't enjoy reading and they'll read less and therefore the knowledge gap grows. And it's very difficult um, over time to, to close the gap as it widens. So the best time to focus on that is to try to stop the gap from appearing in the first place. So improving vocabulary can actually be a more beneficial way of improving reading comprehension. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, it's, it's both. So obviously if you, if you can't read the words on the page, if you can't work out what the word is, then, um, you, know, then you, you won't know what word it is that you're trying to work out the meaning of. Um, and the other way around, you can know the, the, a lot of words um, in spoken vocabulary, but if you can't work out what the word is, then it's no good to you. But, so those two things are really the, the key aspects of um, early literacy development and they're, they're things that both parents and teachers can work on but vocabulary is um, the thing with vocabulary is, is it's infinite to some extent whereas decoding is a, um, a, a skill which has a ceiling so once children know how to do that then they know how to do it whereas um, the vocabulary gap can grow almost forever um, and so it means that that, that if the, the gap exists in the first place, it's just going to grow and grow over time, which is the Matthew effect, and it's, um, it's almost impossible to catch up because the accumulation of, um, of words of children with a rich vocabulary is just going to grow exponentially compared to, to students who, um, who have started off at a low base. Um, it's, I'm just trying to think of, a, um, of an analogy. I guess you, it would be tr like trying to make up for, in you know, the space of, of six months, um, what a child, another child might have taken three years to learn. Uh, and, it, and during the six months where you're trying to catch that child up in what the, the other child knows, their, their um, knowledge is still growing. So they've not stopped while you've been trying to catch up, up the child who started at a lower base. So this is the difficulty with schools with vocabulary. It can be taught, but it's really difficult to close the gap, whereas the decoding gap can be closed with really good instruction. That's fascinating because I've only ever really thought of students as having either more or less vocabulary or being more or less gifted in that area. 
but the the identification of of the Matthews effect or the widening gap, I, I think that sounds quite alarming. It is, and 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 that is why this problem has been so hard um, to rectify. And you know, the, the decoding aspect um, is critical because that allows all children to achieve at least a basic level of literacy. And there is no reason why almost every child cannot be um, at least functionally literate. However, it will take a much more um, concerted effort, particularly in the early years of school, to develop that that broader language capacity that it's so much harder for schools to remedy. Let me just uh, segue back to discovery versus minimally guided versus explicit instruction. I can't imagine young children who have a, a vocabulary deficit picking up a dictionary saying, oh, I don't know too many words. I think I'll look through this dictionary and pick out some nice ones today and see if I can learn those. If we are heading more towards a minimally guided or a discovery-based learning model, are we flirting with danger here a bit? Very much, because it, it assumes a level of, of knowledge that a lot of students don't have. Um, and it potentially it widens the gap, because students who already have some knowledge and have some sort of vocabulary, they can handle these sorts of inquiry-based um, lessons and and will learn something from them. Students who start with very little in terms of knowledge and skill will flounder um, and sometimes learn the wrong things or just free ride on, on um, their peers if it's group work. Mm. So even something like, um, you know, students go ask to do some research perhaps on the solar system. Um, unless they... <laughs> know what a planet is you know so their vocabulary is really key to this so in order to to do that kind of task the vocabulary level is is already quite high um understanding about what planets are what a sun is what stars are what space is um these are all sorts of concepts that um need to be understood before a child can go off and and um and make any kind of sense of um, a research project where they're, they're cut loose um, to work independently. So this is where explicit instruction is so powerful for children, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds, is that it doesn't assume a lot. It, it starts from scratch. It can move rapidly, as rapidly as a child can learn, um, so it doesn't have to be boring, but it doesn't leave gaps. Uh, it, it makes sure, checks for understanding, makes sure that that knowledge is embedded before moving on to the next step. Uh, we were talking before about the fact that there might be a, a range of opinion or uh, some people might be leaning more towards this or that, particularly when it comes to things like direct instruction versus inquiry-based learning. I, I would have to say that my, bal- uh, my bias, I should say, leans towards direct instruction. And I guess one of the reasons why I like that idea is because of the, the relationship with cognitive load theory. And uh, I was just wondering whether you could help us understand the idea that if someone is helping you to understand a concept, that actually reduces cognitive load and perhaps takes pressure off our working memory because someone else has been through it before we have. I only have a a fairly basic understanding of cognitive load theory. It's a a theory that's still in in development in a lot of ways. But essentially it it works on the idea that if you can... um, make simple concepts automatic. So you're not having to um, completely go back to, to step to square one each time you're learning a new concept, that certain things are already embedded to the point of almost being like second nature. When you are learning about a new concept, 
um, or a new skill, then you can build um, that new knowledge on top of what is already um, really well embedded in, in your memory. So um, I'm thinking, for, for example, about fractions. It's very difficult to, to learn um, about adding and subtracting and um, reducing fraction, fractions if you don't know times tables. Yeah. So if you can know, understand the process of times tables and, and multiplication, but if that's not an automatic um, thing in your mind, if you don't automatically know um, by looking at a number what are the factors of that number, um, so that you can, you know, create your lowest common denominator or find the lowest common denominator and, and do what, you know, the next step. Then every time you go to do some, something with fractions, you're going back to square one, trying to work out, you know, which are the, the multiples and so on. So it just, the, the effort that's involved in doing that sort of task um, is so much greater if basic concepts aren't stored in memory and no longer having to be um, in the front of mind, so to speak. Well, it's a, a great report. I uh, commend all of our listeners uh, to, to download it from your website and, and read it. Jennifer, it's been full of insight. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for talking to me. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to download a copy of the Centre for Independent Studies report titled Read About It, visit the website at cis.org.au. And if you'd like to know more about LearnFast and individualised neuroscience-based language and reading programs for your child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.